Um, so I'm going to kind of take some of my thoughts on these plants and give you how I would drink. So I'm about to go out for the night. I know I'm going to go to more than two or three bars and I know I'm going to either dance or do karaoke with Julie. I'm going for a tapestate, whether it's the Bonas tapestate, some others, there's a really some great ones from Neta and some Santitos out there that I've got on my back bar. I'm, I'm leaning towards a little spiciness, a little herbaceousness, which I tend to find in a lot of tapestates, but on a huge scale. If I'm going to sit at home, I'm going to put on a jazz record. One, it's probably going to be Mingus. Two, I'm going to be drinking an Artecanio. I'm going to do it two ways. I'm going to do it neat. I'm going to make myself an old fashioned because it's okay to make cocktails with fancy mezcal. You're drinking it, drink it how you want to. Hey everybody, welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me, whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here, and so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back for another episode of Decoding Cocktails. I'm your favorite podcast host who loves his podcast so much that despite currently being on vacation, he's working on the podcast. But I'm glad you are here. My guests today are Julie Figueras and Alex Jandernoa. They both work for CNI Brands, an importer of various artisanal spirit brands. Uh, we got together today on this episode to talk about uh, Banez Mezcal. And uh, Julie and I had a wonderful searching conversation late in the afternoon at Bar Convent in Brooklyn, where I'd probably been in the tasting room a bit longer than necessary by this point. But we had a wonderful conversation that led to us ultimately scheduling a podcast conversation that specifically talked about Banez and what really drew me in was the governing structure that Julie talked about that surrounds the brand, a co-op called Upadek. And it was heavily focused on ensuring the prosperity of the co-op's members. This reminded me of something that Adrian Stoner of Plantation Rum said when we chatted, which is that, you know, as significant investment is made into the agave world, while funds are necessary to really help scale things up, the question is who is profiting in the long run. And when it comes to Apatic, it seems like this is playing out in the right way, keeping a lot of money in Mexico, in the families who are really doing the work. Uh, I also really love this conversation because it extends off my most recent conversation with Blue Hill Farm. One of the things you're going to hear come up is how planting a more diverse array of agaves and plants is helping Banez not only maintain good soil health and high quality agave, but at times even help rehabilitate land that was previously over farmed. Uh, to the whole thing surrounding Upatic and, and this, one of the com comments that Alex, I believe, said during our conversation was, there can't be environmental sustainability without economic sustainability. I think that's very important. Uh, you are going to hear us dive into all sorts of different things uh, around agave plants, farming, and more. But if you're looking for tasting recommendations, have no fear. We'll get there towards the end of things. Uh, it's funny, as I was thinking up 
this conversation. It was like, you come for the Mezcal, but stay for the family. One of the things that you, I think you will find as endearing as I did is as Julie and Alex are talking about, um, you know, what UPEDIC stands for and all of these things, uh, you're going to hear them not only name the distillers and growers by name, like they know how old they are. They know their children. Uh, they go to their baptisms. Like they are all the way in on this. And that to me just speaks to people who care deeply about this as opposed to just trying to chase the next hottest thing in the market. Um, they were quick to say that if you want to get in touch with them, uh, the Banez pages, social or otherwise, are great. So you can find them on Instagram at Banez, that's B-A-N-H-E-Z, Mezcal, M-E-Z-C-A-L, Artesanal, A-R-T-E-S-A-N-A-L. Um, and Alex is at uh, Gigandernoa, that is G-I-G-A-N-D-E-R-N-O-A, and Julie is Xanadu Julie. There are links to all this in the show notes. Uh, these two people are great humans. You'll be able to tell immediately. I know you're going to love this conversation. So first, uh, Alex and Julie, thanks so much for taking time to talk. I am, um, you know, I've spent time exploring Mezcal on the show before and on my own, but uh, Julie and I had a really wonderful conversation uh, several weeks ago, which perked up my uh, eye, ears to a kind of a whole other angle that I feel like I've bumped into, but haven't thought enough about. But where I'd like to start kind of just for to keep things light is, you know, I, I feel like I had to talk to Julie for about nine seconds before I could feel the passion like coming off of her about the topic. But for each of you, is there a first time you remember tasting agave and thinking about it differently or something you bumped into that that drew you into this space is there is there an early memory it doesn't have to be the memory but, but what comes to mind when i ask that i think for me it was i'd been uh selling mezcal behind the bar for many years but it always came in one of three bottles and i wasn't necessarily fond of them and it always had the same agave on it and and uh, so I think it was the first time that I actually found myself in an environment with other people who were already really passionate about the category, sharing other agaves um, and family stories and like the uniqueness behind production and history and traditions. Um, and that was the first time that I had Tepestate and I was all in from there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so i've always worked in kind of like farming and food uh it's been my passion for a really long time and kind of the correlation for me and mezcal came as a cheesemaker uh, in my like early 20s and kind of looking at the molds and the fermentation and having a hard time back then talking people into trying goat cheese uh, and then kind of as it progressed, Mezcal was one of these things where it was the first time that I saw people's eyes light up about this kind of weird mold and fermentation and these things that I had been obsessing over um, in a way that I thought was translatable and more geared towards 
normal people enjoying something that's incredibly, incredibly weird to make. I'll tell you what I I love that because it's amazing. One of my best friends uh, does not uh, unfortunately he's uh, he's weird and does not like cheese. Um, but um, I find it interesting that yeah, on some mezcals and especially a handful of like the ricias I have here in the house, I feel like I get all these like you know very strong cheese notes off of them. So that's that's a fun kind of correlation to get you there right there. I like that a lot. So obviously, so obviously we've come here to talk a little bit about uh, Bonnez today, but you know, again, one of the things that drew me in that I feel like I've bumped into a handful of times is the idea that, you know, this category is not new. This is a longstanding practice in Mexican culture, but we've certainly, Mezcal has been the, hopefully for the most part, beneficiary of a, a rising profile where we see it in all sorts of different cocktails now, all sorts of different bottles. And yet, as this industry scales up, there's a question of, environmental concerns. There's a question of how do we make things that are sustainable and of course, put money in the pockets of people that are growing and making the product in the first place. So Bonnez is uh, anchored by a co-op and is it Eupatic? Is that how you say it? Sorry. I, I Okay. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll throw it to you guys in a second, but tell us about why this co-op exists. Um, and and what it kind of really stands for as a place to start. Yeah. Um, so the co-op is kind of an evolving and changing things. And I think the first and most important place to start is kind of the word cooperative. Uh, I've worked for quite a few, not just in the, like, not the mezcal world, but all over. And it's a word that we apply loosely to a lot of different kind of farming and working structures. Um, and so there's co-ops of different shapes, uh, sizes and shapes. And so Upatic, which is the one that kind of owns and operates Bonhez as the Moscow, is a really large cooperative. So I think first and foremost, like kind of looking at the fact there are small co-ops, which many of us who go to our farmers markets and look at that table full of groceries and say, wow, this is this is great. That's three or four far smaller farms working together. Uh, so Upatic is kind of born of the idea of that but looked at scalability where it can be an operating business to bring products to the world. And so working from the smallest ones that are like uh, three or four farms in middle of nowhere, Illinois, uh, all the way to some large ones like this one um, and coffee and stuff in between. Uh, I think what you can look at is this co-op is a way to take the normal structures of making mezcal and apply them in a way whereby instead of one person doing it, you have multiple, so it can scale to meet the demand without putting too much impact. So that was the base idea of the cooperative structure behind Upatic is how do we take mezcal production, agave growing, all the little things in between and vertically integrate it into one. Um, what has been born out of that is a cooperative that started with agave growers, um, actually Francisco's mother, the founder's mother of our co-op uh, started with a group of women agave growers that then was translated into a growing and selling of agave to maestros outside of Ahutla, which is where the co-op is located, which then kind of started to evolve where it started to include and look at, if you're looking to make mezcal, you have to have people who make the product, people who grow the crops to do it, uh, people who are going to take care of the land as well as place to bottle and box and all the kind of mechanics behind making mezcal 
And so UPADIC, which stands for Union de Agricultores de Distrito de Ajutla de Crespo, which is a unionized workers of agriculture in Ajutla, takes a look at we can find and have jobs and positions and ownership for every single aspect of that under one house. Yeah, and that certainly seemed like, you know, part of the interesting appeal is as demand for some of these products ramp up, there is, uh, or, or for, the, for the plants and ultimately the ultimate, you know, juice that comes out on the other end, there's questions about how do we farm in a sustainable fashion and the fact that with some of these operations still being fairly rustic and it being a big costly venture, the idea that, you know, no matter which part of the supply chain you're in, you are kind of a partial owner of that uh, is, is certainly part of the goal here, as opposed to ultimately working to get it to a middleman who will bottle it for you. You kind of take care of the full supply chain at that point in time. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And so one of the things I guess that I was interested to to talk about is, um, you know, your farmers uh, might grow one or multiple types of agave. Some are wild and some are more cultivated. But one of the things without, you know, that I, I, I have wondered about at times is when we talk about growing, you know, just acres and acres of of corn, when we talk about growing products in this broader monoculture, for lack of a better term, which is probably the accurate one, uh, you know, for for efficiency's sake, it's great when they're all right next to each other, but what does that do to the land and what does that also do in terms of um, of opening the, the plants up to various diseases and other things like that? So um, there is kind of like, as I understand with some of the Bonnes practice, there is the idea that these things are not all cultivated in like the most traditional of agricultural rows. Is that, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I've, I've heard before about farming styles called like milpa before, which is kind of this more integrated practice. Is that a good way to think about how some of your agaves are are raised? Or let me turn that over to you from here. Yeah. Um, so the I think staying milpa is an absolutely 100% accurate way to, to do this. Um, so milpa as a farming style is seven to 8,000 years old. Uh, it comes from Oaxaca, actually, and other parts of Mexico have history of it as well, but we have documented evidence of this. Um, and so it's based around multi-crop systems. And this stems from necessity and land care, uh, which when you look at the topography of Oaxaca, hasn't really changed. It's still really mountainous, really hot, and most of the time dry. And so when you look at land usage, you still have to be as smart as you can. And when we look at American crop usage, we have pretty steady temperatures, growing seasons, farming. Um, and so there has been kind of a resistance to switching over to that monoculture. And so the monocultures you're talking about now is something that we've seen take hold in the past 5, 10, 20 years. But as our co-op was built 25 years ago with kind of this farming style that has existed for so long into it, it's baked into the DNA of the co-op. And so there are 75 families in the co-op entirely. All of them are growing uh, crops of some sort, right? Whether they're growing agave for um, the co-op or just growing corn, squash, beans, things that they're going to eat. And so the 
growth of and use of agave in our co-op had to be taken into account that that's part of the lifestyle. So if you are one of these families that decides to grow agave for the co-op, you have to participate in a system that includes milpa, whether that's, and that's not looking at like, oh, you have to find ancestral grains. You have to do what milpa was 8,000 years ago. You have to do what milpa is now, which means taking a look at your land. And when you're growing espadine per se, uh, you have to grow not only espadine, if you want to be part of the co-op, but you also have to grow barril, another species of agave that we're going to include. So one, your field is already more biodiverse. Two, uh, where is possible, you have to grow crops. Um, so most of our folks are growing corn, squash, beans, but we also have members like one of Julie and I's friends, Utumio, who has tons and tons of prickly pear everywhere. He has a tuna fruit farm. Um, and then in certain parts of this hill, as Milpa kind of noticed, you can't grow crops. It's too hot, it's too sunny. And so what we encourage and say is grow grazing grasses and allow your community or your family or either the other co-op members to graze their cows, their sheep, their um, their cattle, basically their goats. Sorry, I missed that one. No, that's the cheese I made. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so this type of farming, while 8,000 years in history, is still applicable and works best for this top topography. Uh, and so what we can do is we can build it into the co-op structure so that it's environmentally, or, excuse me, economically incentivized to do this. I, um, <clears throat> so eventually we're going to talk about making sure we don't overly romanticize like the practice of, of any of this, but, um, I just, so one, you know, uh, uh, episode that'll be, have been released before ours comes out. I was able to talk with the restaurant group, group Blue Hill up in upstate New York. And, you know, for them, you know, their whole push has always been about flavor and this resistance to just like efficiency and yield for efficiency's sake. And so to think about like, what does the land want? And also to the point, like, how do people live in these communities? If they're just growing agave everywhere, they're not going to have, like, they, they got to eat something. And so I think it's, uh, it's wonderful to hear that that is so baked into the company that it can find a way to grow through these, you know, sustainable cooperative practices, and yet not force people to have to change their lifestyle wholesale. I think is uh is it just it it speaks to me so um I I just I think it's beautiful. Yeah, and and one thing I want to add about about this farming style and you know what what you had mentioned about like the efficiency of monocrop planting and harvesting is it's a huge difference between the type of farming we're talking about in Oaxaca versus the type of farming that we see a lot more prevalently here in the United States. Um, and we kind of touched on the fact that like, this is a traditional form of farming. Um, monocrop farming is, is a much more modern utilitarian approach to farming and we see the detriment. You said, what does the earth need? What does the community need? We see the detriment here in the United States of what happens when we only grow and harvest corn on the same earth with no time in between. We, we've hit roadblocks with that where we have to leave completely barren lands um, after a certain amount of harvests because we're not taking care of that earth. By having this milpa biodiverse focused style of farming, you know, you've got agave fields that take no less than six years to mature for harvesting. There's 
three cycles of, of corn in a single year. There are multiple uh, types of, of produce that can be farmed within, you know, the life cycle of that one espadine. And then even greater when we're talking about the longer gestational periods for the other agaves, where and, and then the inclusion of even if it's just grazing grass, having all of those natural elements, all of the animals and the insects and the things that feed off of bi biodiverse, rich cultures and environments that keep the earth happy and and nutrient dense to continue to be able to use these lands for whatever purpose for hundreds of, of you know, if not thousands of years. Um, I remember on, on a, an early trip of mine to Oaxaca, having a friend taking me out horseback riding. And he's like, do you know that this family has been growing their crops and their corn on this one field, this plot of land for like eight generations. And they don't hit these issues because of milpa farming. Like this extends, you know, beyond agave. Right. And so it really is to to come back to what you said. It's what the earth wants, and it it's a source of abundance for its community that utilize it in this way. Um, and we, I don't know, we could really stand to to take a note in American farming. Yeah, um, and just sorry, you're talking my language now. Julie's got me all excited with the dirt talk, <laughs> um, but. Something to, you, you mentioned over-romanticizing this, which I totally get, right? Um, as like a soil nerd, going there was very awe-inspiring. I think Julie was actually, had we had met up just after I'd gone to visit like a prehistoric cave about farm. Um, but that's not to say that this, we don't want to pigeonhole anybody into this style of farming in terms of what, it has to meet certain criteria, but it doesn't need to look old. Right. And so it, we have through this and, you know, now doing this for years, we've actually seen kind of how it can be used for modernization. Uh, so the Perez family um, have had been looking at different lands in Ahula that are non-aerable, were non-plantable for crops um, and have been using agave to restore that by planting it with agave for which we'll take in that kind of land, letting it do its work, gathering water, rebuilding organic matter. Uh, and recently they've been able to plant grazing grass throughout these whole areas. And so the community has now been able to open up. And so it looks like a field of espadine, right? And a place that didn't used to be espadine. But one, we take part of the co-op structure, which we can talk about later, I'm sure, to ensure that we're not planting the same genetics over and over and over again. So these fields are biodiverse, even if they are fields of espadine, there's 80, 90 parental species there. But two, we're seeing that it can help bring back land that maybe had been done in monocropping, because it's not to say that this didn't exist in Mexico or doesn't exist in Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, but in Ahula, we're seeing it as a restorative practice where people can still plant their corn, sell it for masa, make their additional money, as well as be a member of the co-op for agave. Mm -hmm. You know, and and so where I think makes even more sense, we can jump ahead to and, and come back. So one of the things that we had talked about was the idea of, um, so I think, you know, again, in Julie's in my very calm, AKA very impassioned conversation, I think in Brooklyn, uh, <laughs> uh, we talked about that too. I've been fortunate to visit a Ricea distillery and it was, it was a lovely, lovely experience. And yet it is incredibly, uh, I'm trying to look for the word, like very, you know, basic, you know, I mean like, you know, dirt floor, you know, thatched hut. And 
for us, the onlooker into that. And there is, of course, some of the benefits of using these these systems. But anyways, but these are, this is a painstaking amount of labor required in very, very basic, you know, settings. And so, you know, Julie, one of the things that you and I had talked about was the idea that that while we want to make sure we preserve the tradition of how this uh, crop is grown and and ultimately distilled, we certainly don't want people to go through unnecessary amounts of backbreaking labor, et cetera. So I know you talked about at least one example of where we're trying to blend uh, tradition with modernity. And I think one of them had to do with um, some kind of ergonomic, perhaps yeah. like a distillery, but whatever comes to mind, if you talk to us about some of the ways that we're able to preserve tradition, but also not leave people working with tools from, you know, uh, 500 years ago. So. Yeah. I'm going to let Alex go into some of the the details on how Upadak has been doing some of these traditional plus modernization blending, but, you know, just for a frame of reference, some of it comes from part of my passion behind it comes from the fact that at the end of the day, we're talking about families in, in 2023. Um, there is, of course, tradition and culture that needs to be preserved, um, that deserves to be honored and respected. And there's a beautiful place for that. But I do get a little, I get a little not defensive, but protective because Alex and I spend so much time with these people. We go to their children's baptisms and birthday parties. We celebrate their lives. We don't just drink and buy mezcal from them. Um, that there's certain romanticized personalities or opinions or schools of thought, especially here in the United States, and, and I'm sure everywhere, that if you don't do it in the utmost rustic of practice, that there's something inherently wrong with it. Um, and one of the more absurd ideas is that like, you can't use a machine to crush. You have to use it to hone. Or, um, you know, you you can't build a palenque that's not on the side of your house because heaven forbid someone just has a nice home and land to build a, a facility. Um, so, so those are the things where I personally get very protective over these people, not just a new paddock, but anyone that they don't deserve to create efficiency, that they don't deserve to create ergonomic practices that don't just facilitate a more efficient way of producing that is more lucrative, um, but also preserves their bodies um, for their, their own abilities to, to continue to produce and the longevity of their careers. I mean, many maestros and maestras, they retire when they can no longer get out of bed. They're not, they're not hitting 65 and cashing in on, on some kind of like government payment system in the same way that we all think about it. And so the idea of work and ethic longevity and the ability to work is a completely different thing um, when we're talking about the laborer involved in producing mezcal at every step. Uh, so I'll, I'll pass it to Alex to kind of get into, you know, some of the examples of very traditional producers, as well as some of the more modern um, influence that we we've seen and the success of it. Yeah. Um, and that's Julie's stated that kind of 
same irritants that I have in a much more elegant way than I ever could. Uh, but yeah, it is something that uh, just kind of to put it in a frame of reference, I was lucky enough to live with the folks in Oaxaca for like a year and a half straight. Um, and I've been back and forth so many times. Uh, it, it really is just like a really special and lucky thing to have. And it gives you a perspective. And so it lets you see that, again, like Julie mentioned, these are humans, these are people, they live in 2023. Uh, and yes, some of them have our ninth generation. Uh, for example, Apollonio Patricio has three generations in his distillery right now. It's him, his son, his son-in-law and daughter. Uh, his wife also distills as well. And his four, five-year-old now, it's crazy, uh, Angel, who's his grandson, who just planted their first agaves. And so it's eighth, ninth, and tenth generations for this uh, distillery. Um, because of this, Polo has some pretty <laughs> strict regimens and thoughts on how you make mezcal. And so he sticks to the traditional Tohona. His oven is still uh, river rock, uh, and it's only like five or six. And instead of being more conical, it's dug deeper. So to be honest, as someone who worked with him for a month, it's a pain in the ass to unload. Like I'm younger and I hurt working with the 60-year-olds. Um, but he firmly believes that it makes better mezcal. Uh, and that is his prerogative. But then again, to some purists, he also keeps his stuff in plastic and glass garifonis. He's got, um, he's the local mechanic. So he also fixes everybody's grinder. Um, and so there's kind of this juxtaposition with him where he believes that the style making mezcal, but he's not going to shame anybody for doing it. And so he was our first maestro in that kind of mentality of this is how I want to do it. So that's, I'm going to do it, but I'll help you do it how you want to do it has how we've kind of approached the co-op. So Polo is our largest percentage stakeholder as um, a maestro, master distiller. An original um, member. Too. Yeah, he's also the first ever maestro to join the co-op. Mm -hmm. um, right, so he's been around for a long time. Versus one of our other top five percentage holders who's much younger and newer, Atumio Coronado Vasquez, uh, who's also one of Julia and I's friends. Um, and he's younger than, he's much younger than both Julia and I. Not um, much. <laughs> it's not yeah, sorry, but like just trying years. to emphasize. Yeah, <laughs> you're talking about a woman's age like that, Alex. <laughs> nah, I was, sorry, I apologize. I mean that uh, Julie is like five years younger than Timmy, and Timmy's Thank like twenty five. Yeah. Um, so Timmy is started off. Uh, he's from an agavero family, someone who grew agaves, uh, but he always wanted to be a maestro in his own palenque, and so he has looked at how that is possible. Uh, he's taken out micro loans throughout the co-op, really worked the system. And his dream of a palenque is one where community members can come and work and have a shift. And there's young and old mixed. And you can work there for years and retire from there with like a healthy back, a healthy body. And so his distillery is gravity felt. It's built away from the community um, to, to lessen the impact on the community. Uh, it has solar power. It has Wi-Fi. Um, he built an oven where he can, rather than loading from the top over, he took some inspirations from some early 1930s drawings that he found in Guadalajara of bottom load ovens, commonly found in Rasia usage, actually, uh, and built one that's there. So they're not throwing and loading. They're able to control the fire and burn at a more efficient rate. He put in a step system into his distillery um, so that the oven rolls directly into the grinding area, rolls directly into the ferment area, rolls directly into the stills uh, on like four foot little steps um, in there. He has, along with that, created a ventilation system with his roof so that his workers don't get smoke 
inhalation, um, which is a big concern that not many people are thinking about. And then on top of that, he built a water filtration system for all of his wastewater using Bagasso and collection systems and sand and pea gravel, which not is just for him to water his crops, but waters all of the fields around him that are people that are not even part of the co-op. All because the efficiency of his water retention is so high that it's cheaper for him to do that and water his field and everybody else's than the traditional method of just watering his field. So both of these people exist co and coincide, work on the same projects, have releases within Bonhez, have voting rights. One's a 65-year-old man who's had generations and generations of experience, and one is a first-generation owner. Um, and they both, <laughs> yeah, they both make amazing mezcal. Like, I've got polos right here in the glass bottle, and Timmy's right here. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, they sit side by side on my desk at home, too. So... First, uh, we'll try to make sure that there's links to photos of distilleries and whatnot uh, for a, a, a triple word score word, just to make sure we're hitting our definitions for people. So bagasso would be the spent agave, correct? So you're using that to help filter filter the water is what you're saying. Is yes. that correct? Okay. I like to think of it as leftover mash. Leftover mash. Thank you. Very good. Um, yeah. And one other thing that Julie and I remember we hit upon when we talked about the romanticization of, of everything that is, and it's so beautiful that you can have this multi-generational family. And yet for all of us, you know, I mean, seemingly a relatively universal, you know, human thing is parents wanting whatever better is for their children. And so we certainly love the idea that this family would be generational for ad infinitum right here, but there can also be a point in time when your father is a, a cobbler, a chef, a mezcal distiller and you're like, but I, I want to be a musician. And, and the idea that, that especially making sure that wealth is retained properly, that you're not tied to the family business because there's not a choice. And so it's, it's another beautiful thing about the broader conversation about international investment and who's coming in to kind of make all this possible. Not that it's all a bad thing, but making sure that the families and the growers are paid well so that they can do better for themselves and for their kids in whatever way that ultimately looks like. Yeah. And, and that is, um, that is another really important facet. We were just talking about Atumio. Um, Atumio is also not only a maestro for Upadek. He's, he's also the leader of the accounting department. He works at our bottling plant, which is our headquarters for Bonez and Upadek. And he's crunching numbers all day uh, behind a desk most of the time. And so what's so beautiful about this is that you're not, you're not only producing mezcal in the one piece that you were born into. Uh, Alex had touched on, Atumio was born into a farming family. Prior to a paddock, his entire town was farming. There were no generational uh, maestros and palenques. Um, and with the expansion and prosperity of Upadek, we've seen more than one Palenque grow, several of which are in the, the cooperative, um, which was a possibility that didn't exist prior to this generation. And then beyond that, it's, you know, if Atumio is behind a desk a lot of the time, you, there's, there's obviously other people working in his Palenque, like Alex was saying, that are pulling shifts, that are 
you know, learning this trade for the first time from the distillation side who were born into farming families. Or I remember the first time I visited uh, Timmy's Palenque, I was with Timmy and Francisco and they were telling me that there were five um, first generation maestros y maestras working at the Palenque and that all of them had previously been migratory workers from the United States. And the reason why they were working here for Upadek um, at Timmy's Palenque was because it created a lifestyle that was more sustainable and equitable for them. And I don't think I've ever lost my, I'm going to curse shit in front of a bunch of strangers who I can't speak easily amongst more in my life. It, it was such a, an eye-opening moment that they get to come here. They get to live at home with their families. They can work a respectable job, make a living that values the labor that they're contributing. And because of the structure of the cooperative, you're not in it for life. You're in it so long as it serves you that if ever you want to leave and do something else, you've actually done work that is propelling you towards agency and the ability to have the lifestyle that you want, um, not the lifestyle that you get or can have. Um, and that is something that I do believe is fairly unique to producer own cooperative structures. And that's not to claim that Upadek is the only one. I am, I don't spend enough time in Oaxaca to be able to know and vet the production and practices of every single mezcal producer. I am sure that they're, that we are not alone in this, but in terms of scalability, in terms of the widespread community effect of Upadek in this way specifically, it is something that I am humbled by on a daily basis um, to see people say, I've worked for 10 years in this cooperative at the bottling plant, at someone's palenque. And now I think I'm going to go get my accounting degree, or I'm going to become a dentist, or I'm going to go travel with my family for a long time. The idea that these people take time off is not, that is that is just like not fundamentally rooted in a lot of these communities, like, like day-to-day -day lifestyles. They're like, what's time? What do you mean? We don't, you work, you work five days a week. What are you lazy? Like the fact that they're positioned in a way where it's like, yeah, no, you actually make plenty of money to go take like a month off and do whatever you want. And that putting the agency and the opportunity back in their hands and I want to be careful that I don't sound like Alex and I or the people that, hey, that sign our paycheck do that. They do it to themselves. They've created this structure themselves. And to see it done in a scalable way that is designed 100% to serve them, their community, their land, and their own agency and prosperity, the equitable generational wealth that it seeks to create and grow is to me like the number one reason I get up and talk about this brand every day. So cool. And uh, I, I do want to jump in to talk about the products, but I was thinking too about another, and this is not designed to be a, because uh, it's easy to do, but a poo-poo on America uh, remark. But one of the things that I think is baked into part of our DNA is you come here for 
a better life. And you know what? Hopefully over the over the hundreds of years, many, many people have found it. But the idea being that what does it look like if people like often leaving home is is heartbreaking? And the the idea that to put structures into place that can make sure that people are paid well so that they can never have to leave or return to their families, I think is a is a beautiful thing, you know. Uh so um it's wonderful that the company provides that for people. It's not I'm the company, it. the cooperative. Yeah. <laughs> the cooperative. Thank you. Thank you. We don't do it. Correct. Yeah, we yes. are just yes. lucky you enough get to... to talk about it. Yes. Yeah. And, and by the company I meant I meant Hupatic, yeah. but Bonus. thank you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And just kind of something that to touch on that's like at the root of this. Um, is we love we all love a good how many agaves are you replanting? How much how many like are you that using houses. recycled glass bottles or do you have bat houses? Yeah. Uh, but there's no environmental sustainability. This is not possible without economic sustainability. Right? Mm -hmm. You can't just come in and ask someone to do something, right? That's gonna be hard. It's gonna be maybe be a little bit less economical. Um, unless there is a backend, a reward, a, a way that it makes sense for them because that's the only way that it stays. Um, and that's kind of the crux of this whole co-op and when, you know, like Julie and I get, we'll say we because they've, uh, we feel very special and feel almost adopted by some of the people there where like they won't, if Julie goes down with her baby, there's no, Julie doesn't hold her baby. <laughs> right? I, um, yeah. Yeah. I can um, hand my baby when I rip her away to get back in the taxi. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think all this joy and all this happiness and kind of like our enjoyment and getting to chat about this is the fact that for 25 years, Francisco um, and the cooperative structure behind him and all those wonderful people have ensured that the 16 year olds and 17 year olds that want to get in or want to get out, right? They want to go be a dentist, have that opportunity, have that choice. Yeah. Yeah. There is no, there is no sustainability of the earth if there is no sustainability and equity for, for the people. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to uh, quickly, just since there's people tuning in at all different stages of the game right here, I'd like to talk about, you know, you know, certainly the expressions that Banez makes. And certainly in this, I want to get into talking about single versus, you know, ensemble varietals, but very quickly, for people that are, because you guys run, meet these people all the time, and I do, uh, people that still are kind of like, oh, mezcal, like, is that, is that, that's like, so do you mind giving us a quick baseline definition of how we should think about what mezcal is? Uh, and I know obviously it can vary quite a bit, but talk to us a little about what it is, and then maybe we can use some of Bonez's brand's expressions to highlight this in a way. Yeah. So... I think there's two ways to look at mezcal. There's one, the word mezcal, um, and kind of what it means culturally. Uh, and then one, the word mezcal and what it means kind of governmentally. So culturally, the word mezcal refers to any distillate from, made from an agave, uh, right? Uh, and that's really a really, really old, that word, the metal, it comes from metal from Nahuatl, which means cooked agave. Um, but that, and so in some senses that still applies because Every state in Mexico has a history of making a distilled spirit from some sort of agave. Um, what we've now seen it kind of translate into and what we see now is kind of the government body coming in and saying, 
oh, so there's a lot of this. We want to create a category of what mezcal is. And so that's where we start to see it modernly as it separates from tequila, raicilla, bacanora. And so mezcal refers to um, a distillate of agave that is cooked from 100% agave, and it can come from any species. Um, but generally, we see around 42 being used throughout Mexico. It can be produced in 10 states right now. Uh, just a couple months ago, it was nine. So that's something to keep an eye on. Um, but 10 is only about, is less than one third of all states in Mexico. So 10 states in Mexico can produce the official mezcal. It has to come from 100% agave. Uh, and then within that, there's even kind of like more categories. But specifically, what most people talk about are is artisanal or ancestral which is mezcal that follows a technique of distillation that is less industrialized and more rooted in stuff that comes from the past 100 to 300 years of distillation history. That's my, those are my two definitions of mezcal. Do you think that helps? <laughs> no, it, it, it does. And obviously, like with anything, once you start defining what a thing is or isn't or who can make it or who can't, obviously, no legislation anywhere is perfect. And so there's obviously various issues and who is talking to or um, influencing legislators that write things? So this is where you can certainly get into all sorts of deep wormholes about this. But that, that's it's great to know. I hadn't heard about the tenth state, so thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, so for many people, you know, uh, espadín is kind of the the standard bear, the the plant that we see the most. But talk to us a little bit about you know. And I don't know if there's the best way to do this because going through eight doesn't make sense. But when we think about some of the flavor profiles, things people are going to encounter across some of your expressions, how would you tend to think about giving a person a lens into what they might experience if they began to taste, you know, a couple of your expressions? Yeah, I think that in, and we can kind of start a little more widespread um, and come in closer to Bonas. Perfect. When we're talking about, there's the distillation styles that Alex mentioned, and then there really comes down to two types of bottlings um, from both of those distillation styles or any of the distillation styles. And that's single varietal or ensemble. So ensemble is the more historical style of, of bottling mezcal, which means that you have multiple different varieties of agaves that have been cooked and distilled together. Um, and the reason why that's a more historical, um, fundamental style of producing mezcal is because there was a time when we were making mezcal and we did not have the scientific wherewithal to say, well, this species of agave is actually unique from that one, which is unique from that one. And even though they look the same, they are four hues of purpley blue green off from one another. So it actually is a completely different thing. We didn't know that then. Um, and so instead you have the original maestros and maestros, uh, maestros and agaveros going out into their fields and saying, what has the earth given me? This is ready. This is ready. This is ready. Um, harvesting those gifts and bringing them back and distilling them. And that's the birth and the origin of ensemble. Um, the other is single varietal. So a single varietal means we are only harvesting, roasting, fermenting, distilling one kind of agave. And 
even more specifically, like one subset of that kind of agave. We're not just going to do a bunch of different Karwinskis, which is a, a style of agave that produces several different varieties within that family. We have to name a few like the Tobasiche, Quiche, Madre Quiche, Barril. Um, so we're, we're just going to do Barril. We're not even going to add Quiche into that. It's just going to be the one. And so that single varietal is a much more modern approach to bottling mezcal that at least as I've, far as I've been educated, comes from the desire to make mezcal more approachable to a wider audience outside of the producer, the states that, that it's produced in or outside of Mexico. Um, because it allows us to, to much more easily relate what's in the bottle with mezcal to uh, things, categories like wine. We know if we see a red blend, we look on the back and we can see, oh, it's Grenache, Sangiovese, and Merlot. Um, versus if we see a bottle and all it says is Pinot Noir. We know there are only Pinot Noir grapes in there. And so single varietal agave uh, mezcal is to a single grape variety versus a blend is to an ensemble. And so that's the two like big bottling breakdowns. And then beyond that, you get then much more, much more nitty gritty in whether it's a single producer, if it's a single lot. And so then it's, okay, it's, it's Tepestate, but there's five different uh, maestros, their distillates are being blended. All five of those Tepestate distillations are being blended versus a single origin, single producer, which is, it's just this one person's. And that in Banez and Upadek, comes to what we bottle. We bottle single origin, single expressions, and we and then we do ensemble, which is ensemble of producers and ensemble of agaves. In our case, the Espadine with the Barril, and it encompasses every single member of the cooperative. Yeah, it is certainly, you know, to the life that many of us are, I suppose, lucky to live where you can go to the supermarket any time of year and get strawberries or whatever. And the idea that many years ago, that just wasn't a reality. And so to think about um, an era to the point of like, oh, not all of, even if you don't, if you knew what all the plants are, not all my espadine is ready right now, but some of this barrio is ready. We need to make some mezcal. Let's give it a go. As opposed to the idea of, you know, you know, uh, 200 years ago, loading up your truck that didn't exist, like, you're not, you're not going to go acres, you know, miles away, you're going to right. use what you have in front of you right there. And so, right. yeah, like, like you talk about that with red wine, and I think about the same with coffee, too, that, sure, it's wonderful to be able to dive deep into, like, what is this terroir specifically like, but single origin is just another way of looking at a thing. It doesn't necessarily have to be a better way. You know, you could have you know, single origin that's cultivated very poorly on a coffee front, but it's still single origin as opposed to something that's cared for with great beans in the first place. This blend could be much better. And so that's where it gets to this idea of caring for the land and the plant and the integrity of the process is what ultimately Im impacts the quality right there. Oh, yeah. Right. And to, just a, a clear coffee example, uh, I worked in Costa Rica across on a coffee co-op that was agroforestry. 
but they did a blend of all the co-op members. It was reasonably priced, and we were square across the valley from the Starbucks Costa Rica single origin field. Was there agroforestry? Was there anything? This was the early two thousand or like 2010, 2012. No, one, one sold for much higher than the other. And now we look at what has changed, right? So in 2012, Starbucks single origin Costa Rica from that farm sold for higher than agroforestry shade growing coffee from the Costa Rican owned co-op. By sticking to their guns, they now have a coffee that's worth more than that Starbucks one that was across the field five years ago. Um, and so I think there is kind of that same idea has been coming to Mezcal. And we have this great hybrid where you can think about Mezcal like wine. I think Julie's analogy was perfect. I and mean, when you start to look at regionality of Mezcal, the same thing can be applied, right? There's like single hectare, things like that. Um, but that doesn't always indicate that it's great. Right. Rich people buy wine estates, rich uh, fancy coffee is sold under a name and it's bad. Uh, and sometimes the blends, the table red uh, is better because it's made for everybody. Right. And when you're making something for everybody, you tend to try to want to put good quality into everything. Um, and so that kind of brings me to our ensemble, which I know Julie touched on kind of the historic, but ours is an approach that's more modern to kind of meet with the needs of the consumer, but also the needs of the producer. Um, so our flagship product, which is the Bombas Ensemble, um, it is designed to be in wells. It's designed to be for cocktails. Um, and, you know, the kind of the myth of, oh, you have to sit and ship, sip and appreciate that. Like, you can do that with this, but like the guys and the guys and gals who make it, they're not sipping it, <laughs> right? Like they're, they're having a beer and kind of doing it. And so it's made to be that. Um, but to do that, uh, what we noticed, and I say we, but Francisco and the team and the bottling plant, some of the older guys noticed was uh, their competition kind of would just kind of get everything they could and dump to meet demand. And that was understandable because it was so new, uh, but they wanted to do something a little different. And so the ensemble is born out of creating structure and stability and quality. Um, and so how it works is rather than just taking everything we can get from everybody and dumping it and bottling it as fast as we can, uh, the bottling plant actually takes the yearly percentage stake of every member. Um, and then they look at just the people producing the scout. They take their percentage and they extrapolate it to 100. Then what they do is they blend in 10,000 liter, well, 10,700, I'll explain why, uh, 10,700 liter lots. That way, that recipe that they, or that blend, that extrapolation that 100% can be easily converted into a blending recipe. Right, so everybody's percentage, that's how much espadine from Polo, Timmy, uh, Luis you're going to use. That's how much burrillo, that percentage is how much burrillo you're gonna blend it. And so they'll do that for 10,000 liters. And then we've got uh, what I affectionately call our old heads. Uh, and they are a mixture of older and younger guys. Uh, Tuca, one of the guys is 24. We also have Juan Castellano, Sustasi, who's 67. Um, they back check these blends that they do with every lot they've ever released of Ensemble. And they'll say, okay, we need 300 liters from Las Salinas because it's drier in this. We need 200 from Polo to sweeten it up. And so they'll match it to try to make sure that you guys, as the consumer, as Julie and I, as the people who get to sell it, have something consistent and delicious, but also that is still mezcal. It ebbs and flows month to month. Uh, but the big thing that that does is it creates a salary, right? Like you know how much mezcal you're going to make. You can set your percentage. You're not pushed to create more unless you want to. There's a pickup cycle, there's normal scheduling, you have buffers and people that can help you if you're a little short because people can produce more. So it creates 
a yearly, a monthly routine, a salary in a product that's our number one flagship. So what it does is it creates stability across production, consistency for the consumer, and it allows us to create a price that is for everybody kind of steadily going in a year to year contract. So they can choose that if this is working for them, amazing, I wanna be part of the same ensemble next year. But if not, they can leave, but we'll be able to make up the difference, but keep our, our blend tasting really consistent. You know, what I came to me, I was thinking about, and this can, I think can exist in a number of fields, including, so like I had spoken with the uh, head over at uh, Tullamore Dew, and he was saying, you know, that in their operations, that the master blender really is the person who is, because when I see a bottle of Tully or whatever, four roses, it doesn't matter. We expect it to taste like Tullamore. And to that end, when we when were talking about single expressions or single lot, whatever, I mean, that's when it's like, let's see what this particular expression is like based on climate and all these things. But when I'm using my basic kind of well mezcal that could be sipped or for cocktails, like as a bartender, I don't want to have to guess when I'm right. going to make a Oaxaca old fashioned, if this is going to turn out the, no, like this is dialed in. And so, so it's cool that you kind of have on one end, our flagship is consistent and dependable. The other ones like art are designed to vary. That's exactly right. Yeah. And because, you know, like Alex was saying, we do this on a year to year contract as our demand globally uh, grows for Bonas, so can the cooperative because we have this fundamental group of people who are making sure that as new members join, we have a system of checks and balances to make sure that the product stays consistent um, from year to year, lot to lot. And it makes a scalable opportunity without a glass ceiling. Um, I think that is one of the most important parts when we, when we bring a, you know, well, quote unquote, mezcal to the market is people are always concerned with, with quality and, and the quality control that, that lot to lot difference, um, that can make it really challenging to be a high volume bar and have a mezcal cocktail on is that you want your drink to taste the same, just like we want Bonnez Ensemble to taste the same. And so it's, that's the way that we're able to do this. We don't, um, we don't get stuck on the scale of the product uh, with the ensemble because of the function of the cooperative. And then we, at the opposite end of the spectrum, get to have these beautiful single expression, almost like a vintage of these different varieties, currently seven in the market for the United States, depending on where you live. Uh, where you, yeah, you get to taste the nuance. You get to dive deep on the terroirs and on who the maestro and the palenque and the fermentation and, and, oh, I have two from the same guy, but he distilled these at different times in the year, six months apart, and they taste crazy different. Um, you know, you get to kind of experience those, those nuances, those subtleties, uh, without ever having to worry about what's in your margarita. Mm-hmm. And it's exciting as a consumer, I think, and um, I, I had, you know, we're now far enough into this, which is really cool to think about where like whiskey brands, 
they can have that 12-year, that 16-year release. Look at the special 54-year-old barrel cask. Mezcal doesn't tend to lend itself to that. Um, we just bottled, uh, but with this co-op structure, it allows for our guys to have this opportunity to show off really cool stuff that maybe they had in the back room um, and really wait for the opportune time and invest and say, you know what, like, I know that in three years, Stepastate is going to be at a better price when we all discuss pricing. And so uh, prime example, we just had Apollonia Patricio, who we were talking about um, this year, raise his hand and say, yeah, I can do actually, I can do an extra lot of Tepestate and I don't need to distill it. I'm pulling it from the back. And so the U United Kingdom's lot is glass rusted for, for from 2018. But we're not going to put a special label. We're not going to push a special sticker on it because the rotational is meant to be equitable for everybody. And that includes the consumer, right? You're always going to get the best option from one of these producers because they're only going to put their best foot forward knowing that they've got six other people and their their neighbor, right, is also making tapestate. And they want to make the best tapestate, but that neighbor wants to make the best tapestate. So it really is this really fun thing where as a consumer, we get to taste really unique things. We can even do verticals, as Julie mentioned, which I got to do my first vertical tasting with like four type of, four tobolas from uh, one wow. producer. Um, but it also allows for these younger guys who may not, in, in other a lot of other circumstances, couldn't get in, couldn't have a bottle label at the beginning of the year because we're saying we're not saying we're only buying tapestate from this one person as a company. We're saying anybody can get in. Do you have some? Is it good? Uh, we have a 24-year-old. His name's Uriel. Joined the cop a couple of years ago. And like unanimously, all the old guys that usually do Tepestate were like, put his in the front, right? We want to get that to the world. And so it builds a sense of competition, but camaraderie as well. More ships rise the tide. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I could name what my favorite part of this conversation is, but my second favorite part is the fact that showing that you guys are truly in it. The fact that you don't just know names, but like, oh yeah, so-and-so, they're 31 and this guy's 24. Like the fact that we know birthdays and, you know, baptisms is, you know, certainly drives home your commitment to it. Um, you know, I had this conversation recently um, on both sake and shochu. And so I'm curious about this, you know, as people begin to dig in, you know, people listening out there might be super into Mezcal, might have a bottle and some of them might be true mezcal heads out there. But, you know, at times when we're in the store, you see a word like tepetstate and you're like, like, it's a little bit like, oh my God, like, like, like it, it's almost in, in uh, could be intimidating to try to say some of this. So directionally, and obviously we love all of our expressions, you know, in the family, but if people are looking for something more subtle, robust, are there a couple of things, directions you could point people if they're like, okay, listen, I'm in, I've got a bottle of, you know, Vita, or I've got my, I've got my, uh, you know, uh, blended Espadin Barrio here, and I want to make a little bit more of an investment. Are there a couple of suggestions you could offer to people where in, in the catalog they should maybe think about going? I think we, we can, but one thing, just because we are in a digital platform right now that I... <laughs> want to just lay a kind of baseline about is that agave distillates across the category, particularly in mezcal, because of the vast varietals that we're talking about, the amount of variety of nuanced differences between these different agave families that are available in the market. Um, you know, the consumption of mezcal is all about how it makes you feel. And 
as we all know, especially in the cocktail community, you don't need to be a mezcal head to know that the way you enjoyed a bourbon six years ago is not necessarily the way you enjoy that same bottle now because you're constantly, the acidity, the makeup of your body is changing, not just over the years, but throughout the day. Um, and our palates are developing and, um, you know, becoming more refined. If we're focused in one category, we're losing our taste for other things that we're not paying attention to. And of course, the same is, is true in mezcal. Um, we just have a much broader flavor wheel that we're talking about. And um, I just had some folks over the other night who I was pouring some of our fun producer special lots that we picked up this year in, in Oaxaca about the fact that you can taste a mezcal uh, at lunchtime and at the palenque and buy it and bring it home. And then two months later, open that same bottle and have it after you've had a big steak dinner or a dessert and it tastes totally different. And so I'm, we will, we can definitely make some kind of general stylistic directional recommendations, but my favorite thing when someone says, well, what's the best one or what's your favorite is that all of this is of course subjective. And if you try a mezcal that is Alex's favorite and you're like, I would never drink that again, that's okay. It doesn't mean that Alex likes bad mezcal. It means Alex, his palate is, and the mood that he's in is this today right now. And, and the same goes for, for any of our, our tastes. Um, and so if you ever try a mezcal that someone recommended and it's not for you, that's okay. That's just not your mezcal. Um, yeah, and to keep don't trying, give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. <laughs> Anything someone's like, I've had mezcal and I don't like it. And I'm like, well, how many kinds have you tried? Well, I tried one and it came out of this color bottle. And it's like, well, yeah, I don't like that bottle either because it turns out that I really like super floral. I like this. I actually don't even like that agave very much. Like this might be like a, a shun the non-believer, but I don't drink a lot of Espadine by choice. Um, just in general, because I like things that are different. I like, and, and that are different from one another. Like I like Tepestate. I like Mexicano. Um, I don't care for the way that drinking Espadine makes me feel. And that's just me. And it's, it doesn't mean that people who are like Espadine is my favorite are wrong or that sure. they have worse taste. So I just always want to lay the, the, the ground that, um, your favorite mezcal, you have to open the bottle up and try it. Um, so especially rely on your, your, your mezcal bars. Uh, if you're lucky Careful. enough to have a mezcaladia in your community, get in there and don't say what's your favorite, tell them how you want to feel or what you're in the mood for. And, and that usually will help direct what is put in front of you more than anything that we're about to share. Yeah. Um, and then With that, Alex, you know, take it away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, Julie said it perfectly. Everybody's palate's different. Embrace your food memories, right? Does it taste like dinosaur chicken nuggets and you like it? That's cool. That's okay. Mezcal right. is not bourbon. Like yeah. It's not bourbon. It's not unique old school gin. It's not, um, it's something where it's really unique to you. So with that being said, I'm going to offer a totally different take than what Julie did. All right. If you're, I like to look at agaves as their chemical foundations when they're plants. And that kind of gives me a sense of like, oh, Tobola itself is chock full of amino acids, which usually convert to fats and lipids. 
Um, so I'm going to kind of take some of my thoughts on these plants and give you how I would drink. So I'm about to go out for the night. I know I'm going to go to more than two or three bars and I know I'm going to either dance or do karaoke with Julie. I'm going for a tepestate, whether it's the Bonas tepestate, some others, there's a really some great ones from Neta and some Gosentitos out there that I've got on my back bar. I'm, I'm leaning towards a little spiciness, a little herbaceousness, which I tend to find in a lot of tepestates, but on a huge scale. If I'm going to sit at home, I'm going to put on a jazz record. One, it's probably going to be Mingus. Two, I'm going to be drinking an Artecano. I'm going to do it two ways. I'm going to do it neat. And I'm going to make myself an old fashioned because it's okay to make cocktails with fancy mezcal. You're drinking it. Drink it how you want to. Um, and then my third one is a sports activity, right? I'm going to see the Chicago sky dominate. I'm going to go watch some soccer. I'm going for an ensemble, whether that's our classic or something that's a little bit more different. What I like when I'm on the move or know that I'm going to be doing activities that are going to be different foods, different things like that. I want to drink a mezcal that has a bunch of different agaves in it to give me a bunch of different flavor profiles and be a bit more kind of level headed with the extremes, but have more kind of waves so that I can, oh, this hot dog goes well with this. Oh, this pizza goes well because an ensemble will have different, many different options. So those are kind of my three little, what I'm going to do, what I would drink. So birthdays were definitely the second favorite part of the podcast. That was amazing. Uh, <laughs> no, thank you. Because I, when I teed up the question, I, I hope what I was looking for was, yeah, directionally, how do people first go to your, before you buy a bottle, please, yeah, track down a bar with great stuff and have some samples. But I think it's, you know, some people, I, I always have this vision of people standing in their liquor store. Maybe they're in Binnie's or whatever, and they just see a wall and they go, what do I do now? Right. And, and so some of that is tasted at your local bar, et cetera. But it, yeah, it's kind of just directionally, you know, general, how do people begin to think about it? And those are, those are wonderful feelers. And so I'll be sure to include that in our, in our show notes as well. And clearly they should have those from Banez and whatever, of uh, um, you know, varietals are available, but, but yeah, just the idea of how do I begin to think about all these words that I almost can't even pronounce properly. So thank you. So, yeah. And I think, I think if it's a little more, um, straightforward, there's also to me when I, if I'm talking to someone, like you said, like sometimes people don't know how to tangigate what they're looking for, what they want. Um, Sometimes I just break it down into, are you looking for something delicate? Delicate can be herbaceous and floral. Uh, are you looking for something with a funk? Funk can be cheesy, fruity, uh, you know, tangy. Or are you looking for something to be uh, more in that musky category, something that's going to have a little more of that earth, that wood, um, and and that can be a nice, easy way to break it down. And um, Alex, you're free to say how you like to drop them categorically, but um, at least with the Bonas lineup, if you're looking at a store that has several expressions, I, I tend to drop all the Karwinskis down into that, that first delicate category. I love to say that uh, a cliche is a beautiful spring mezcal. It tends to be lighter and more delicate. I also put things like, like Tepestate uh, that have a lot of floral and like white peppery notes into that category. In the funky category, I will drop in um, our Habali 
I always say our hobbies like blue cheese and bubble gum, which is a ridiculous combination. And you're just going to have to drink it to see what I mean. Um, as well as our pachugas, things that have, you know, fruit included in their distillation, like lots of acidity. It's like a tiki drink inside of a mezcal bottle. And then in that kind of musky category, dropping in things like the autocaneo, um, where you're going to get like, you're going to get a little more of that, like puff on your chest. You're going to, you're really going to feel that, that resonate and it's going to have a lot more of those funky, earthy, uh, musky qualities to them. A little more like, like Alex was saying, smoking a cigar and listening to some jazz. Um, so of course it all changes producer to producer, but in terms of agave, there's a little bit of direction that doesn't touch on all eight of our expressions, but, um, those are a little bit of guidance in terms of the category flavor profile that that I like to think of. And then something we've done on our website is if you click the bottle, uh, you know, I think Julie and I in America probably have the most experience trying all the different mezcals from the different producers or different lots. So we've gone and tried to create big buzzwords um, that may apply to those agave flavor profiles that you might find right in there. And so they're not always going to coincide with each other. So one, even though Arcanio has like cacao and leather, they're not always going to be together, right? Or one Arcanio might kind of have leather, one I have cacao. They're just things that we've noticed predominantly from maestro, maestra to palenque, palenque, um, to try to help give people a sense, but not overwhelm them with like, this tastes like this, because it's always going to be how it tastes to you. Mm-hmm. That was all so wonderful. I mean, thank you. That was that was great. Uh, we have covered so much ground. This is great. Um, is there anything else we haven't talked about you guys wanted to cover today? I want to be sensitive to your time, but anything else we haven't talked about you guys would love to run through? I got no place to be, but let me know. Okay. I mean, I think to me, it's just if you haven't, if you haven't opened a mezcal that you like, just keep trying more of them. And, and if something feel doesn't sound right, doesn't feel right, um, ask questions. And if they don't have question answers, then sometimes no answer is the answer and, and, and visit these people. And if you're planning a trip to Oaxaca, spend your time wisely. Don't, don't get on the, the bus that's like shaped like yeah. a barrel. Um, there's, there's really beautiful, beautiful, wonderful, amazing people who are there to, to guide you and to share with you. Um, I'm sure that you can reach out to either Alex or I through the Bana's social media or through our website. Um, if you ever have any, you know, looking for, for friends of ours, uh, friends of Bana's, friends of Ekutla, you don't just have to visit Bana's. We we love Mezcal and we love hundreds of families that make Mezcal for Upadic and otherwise. Um, so 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 visit, visit and experience it. Make your own thoughts and like come to your own conclusions. Don't just take our word for it. Um, and ask questions and and above all, just be respectful. Yeah. Um, and I guess my thing is something that I learned early on from uh, Francisco and especially his son, Luis, uh, who's the director of operations. Bonhez isn't, we don't need you to, be, we don't need to be your only mezcal, right? We're not looking to be 
what you drink all the time, every time. If you go to the bar, if you're a Mezcal fan, you're most likely going to order two. We want to be your old reliable. We want to. We want you to know that you're safe in our hands. You can explore. You can figure out what a Hootla Mezcal is all about. We're not going to be mad if you try other Mezcals. In fact, we want you to. We want you to bring a bottle to share with us and talk about it. Um, so just to reiterate, like transparency is key, and we do our best. So um, ask us questions. If we don't have the answer, we'll do our best to find it or direct you the right way. Um, but yeah, like Julie said, we're easily accessible, and so is the team at Upadic. Um, all we want to do is drink mezcal with you and answer nerdy questions about agave. So hit us up. <laughs> That's great. I will be sure to link to the website and your guys' social channels on the, but just for the sake of it, in case people are typing it in. So Bonez on the socials, what do they look up? Is it Bonez Mezcal Artisanal or, or, or what, what's the handle? Okay. Yep. Bonez Mezcal Artisanal, but you type in Bonez, I'm pretty sure we're the only the one that's up, but it's got our big logo. Um, our website is bonezmezcal.com, uh, and you should be looking for some updates to that website in the coming weeks here. We're really excited. Yes. Uh, and then one last thing is keep an eye out for our new bottles, uh, designed by a local Oaxacan Zapotec artist to honor our Zapotec heritage, uh, featuring the agaves to make that decision you were talking about at the store just a little bit easier because it's like, oh, I know what this looks like now. Um, so keep your eyes out for that. Wonderful. Really, Alex, this is honestly, this is wonderful. Thank you for taking the time today. This is great. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Chris. This was awesome. Really our pleasure. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter. Or give us a follow on Instagram at decodingcocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon, and happy cocktail.